few years ago, uh, during the pandemic, we all started, uh, if you didn't have a Netflix account before, you got a Netflix then, right? Because we had to fill up all that extra time at home. Uh, we started, a lot of people started watching uh, this series on Netflix called Stranger Things. You guys remember, anybody watch Stranger Things? Uh, and it, it's set in the 80s, which was, so it's very nostalgic for everybody my age. And um, uh, it follows the lives of uh, 12 and 13 year olds who come in contact with paranormal activity, and one of their 12-year-old friends named Will disappears at the beginning of the season and comes back at the end of the season. And uh, it turns out that he's been in this alternate reality this in, entire time, and, and being a part of this alternate reality permanently affected him, and uh, then it begins to affect other people, and then all of the other seasons are about the way that that alternate reality is, is affecting uh, this, this reality. Uh, in, so they, they begin to call that other place. They start. They don't know what else to call it. They just call it the upside down because it's just the opposite of everything that's that's here is is what it is. And Jesus talks a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not just Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, in all four of the Gospels, the first four books of the Christian New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the four different narratives of the life of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And the way that he describes the kingdom of heaven is kind of like the upside down. Uh, I got to preach at a funeral uh, earlier this year, and I don't know how many of the people in the room were Christians. I, I don't think it was, it was a whole lot, and that's how I kind of came into it, is that somehow we know uh, that the world is broken, that it's not as it should be. Like in the animal kingdom, when, a, when an animal dies, I think elephants will stop for a minute and like hang out with them for a little bit, and then they keep on. But like birds and squirrels and you know whatever, they, they just keep going like... It doesn't seem like death is a thing for them, but for us, man, it's like it leaves a hole in your life that's never filled again. Uh, and, and there's a season where it just sucks all of the good and all of the light out of, out of us. And it, it, like we know, like somehow everybody throughout all of human history in all different cultures, whether they were aware of the existence of God or not, they knew that this wasn't right. There had to be something else out there. And the scripture gives us the answer for that, that God, God actually created a world where death wasn't supposed to be something that humans would experience. And then when we chose to turn away from the source of good, we found bad. When we walked away from the source of life, we found death, the source of holiness, we found the evil, and we created an upside down is what we did. That has corrupted everything and everyone. And what Jesus has done is he showed up to say, like, I'd, I'm here to take the upside down and turn it right, right side up again. Because everything that you've been taught made you important or made you valuable or what you should be chasing, what makes life meaningful, most of that stuff, like, that's why you find people who say, or like, what, who is it, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Carrey, I think is the one who said, I wish everybody could get all the money they ever wanted so that they realize that it isn't going to make you happy in the end. And some of us are like, well, I'd still like to give it a shot. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to be miserable either way, I'd rather have a Maserati. <laughs> so it's Jesus has come to like take everything that we thought was like this, and he's inviting us into an alternate reality that actually is going to transform you from the inside out, is what he does. And... Uh, Matthew is where we're starting, and Matthew is a, he's an unusual person for Jesus to have picked to be a disciple, uh, because if, if, 
in, in Matthew's day, if you were to ask any Jewish person in all of Israel during that first century, lined up everybody in all of Israel and said, which one of these is going to get to write the first book about the Messiah? The last dude you would pick is the guy who sold out his religion to Rome. You wouldn't pick that guy. Now, let's not blame where his life ended up on his mom and dad. I mean, there's only so long you can blame your parents before you are responsible for your own choices. Somebody say amen. Okay. I, I remind myself, there's people who grew up in a whole lot worse situation who ended up a whole lot better. Right? Because they made better choices. Get be make better choices. <laughs> make, what is it? Well, win, do stupid things, get stupid prizes. Did I get that right? Something like that? Okay, anyway. Uh, let's not blame it on his mom and dad. So let's assume that his mom and dad were, you know, good, conservative, religious Jewish people who followed the Torah and went to synagogue, uh, their local synagogue, and then attended temple at all the high holidays. What would, what would it take for Matthew to get to the place where he said, screw everyone and, and everything. I don't care if I ever go to synagogue or temple again. I'm going to sell my heart and soul to Rome. If it means I can never go to synagogue ever again, I don't care. And if it means that all of my family abandoned me, I don't care because those are the things that happened to a, a publican. A publican was in the list of all of the rankings of sin that everybody has, like you would consider an axe murderer worse than a liar. So we, we rank them. Uh, they, in the Bible's ranking of sin, publican was always on the bottom. Like after axe murderer, you'd put a publican. Because an axe murder, because they acted in rage and all they had was an axe. Uh, temporary insanity. But um, a publican was somebody who said, I will profit off the backs of my own people for our oppressors. Who does that? Who sells out all of their own people and their God? for the embodiment of evil in your world. That's somebody who's gotten to the place in religion where he just said, I think this whole thing is crap. That's a guy who's been disillusioned. That's a guy who can't connect the dots. He's like, I don't, like, I don't believe any of this stuff. You're all liars. You're all corrupt. The whole system is corrupt. Screw it. I'm going to get mine. That's, what else would it take? I mean, it would take something pretty extreme so this guy's walked away from everything. And then Jesus shows up. And uh, we know about this conversation that Jesus walks up to him when he's doing his job. But based on his response, he's heard Jesus preach before. He had to have. Because Jesus doesn't give him enough information in the conversation that we do have to explain what he does. So he's heard Jesus. He had to have. All these other times when he's around in the crowd and listening from the fringes. And... He's starting to connect dots, man. He's like, oh my gosh, like, I, don't, I don't know about what I was raised with, but I think that dude might be legit. And one day he's working, he's at the table, and by the way, uh, he would have been flanked by Roman security to enforce the taxes. So Rome would say, this is how much you have to collect from each person. He gets to keep everything over that, he makes them pay. So just like any business person, you buy wholesale, you have to figure out how much you can sell it at retail that people will still buy your product and you're still making enough product. So he's got to figure out how much can I charge them in taxes that I make the most money I can from them without them rioting. And everybody knows that's how he makes his money. So they all freaking hate 
And he's got all these lines of his fellow Israelites standing in front of him and the Romans flanking him. And Jesus walks up to the front of the line, puts his hand on the table. He says, dude, I want you to follow me. And the guy goes, dang, Skippy. And he gets up, Bible says, leaves all the money on the table and starts following Jesus. That's crazy. That's what I'm saying. He had to have heard Jesus preach before. Like, that wasn't his first exposure. Because like you wouldn't, some random stranger walk up to you and go, follow me, and then you quit everything about your whole worldview now. All of your cynicism and deconstruction and your angst towards religion. That doesn't all go away like that. So there's, like, he's beginning to see the dots. And then he writes his narration of the life of Jesus for other Jews who have deconstructed. Who no longer see how the dots connect. And that's his goal in the whole book. I want you to see how the dots connect so that you can find what I found. That's the reason why he writes his book. It's really cool. And he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Luke is the only other person to start with the gene. Actually, he doesn't even start with the genealogy of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus in Luke's gospel is in chapter 3. Matthew opens up with it because he wants everybody to know that Jesus fits the qualifications for the Messiah's birthright. Because he's a descendant of Abraham and he's a descendant of David's royal line. But then he just keeps on going through the rest of the book. He starts connecting the dots for people so that everybody can see that Jesus actually is the personification of God in the flesh to rescue mankind from the upside down. That's what he does. And the cool thing is that Matthew is the only one, well, there's only two that give the genealogy of Jesus, but Matthew includes four women, which was very unusual for Jewish culture and at that time in history. But none of the women he includes are the kind of women you would brag about being in your family tree. There's a prostitute in there. Nobody goes, hey, guess what my grandma did before she met my granddad? <laughs> guess how many people my grandma slept with? <laughs> Some of you guys are like, stop. You need to change the subject. This is inappropriate. Right? Like that's, that, the four, all four women are scandalous. And there's a reason, and we're going to see it in just a second. Now, he starts Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and that's where we're at. Matthew 4, 17, where it says, uh, Jesus went around preaching, repent uh, of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's, that's, that's his, like, that wasn't the whole sermon. That's just the tweetable summary of the sermon. That's all of Jesus' sermons in a tweet. It's... Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is, is near. That's the whole sermon. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew goes on to say in verses 23 to 25 that Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching this in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. Like he, the kingdom. Like So already, we're in just like the first six verses of an explanation of Jesus' ministry. And the kingdom... Like God's reality, the alternate reality, the upside down that God's inviting us into is mentioned twice already, and that is the major theme of all of his sermons. In fact, most of his parables are given to us as an explanation of the upside down. He goes, for the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant who finds a pearl of great price. The kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out into the field to sow. The kingdom is like a man who has 
three servants, and he gives one five talents, and another two talents, and another one talent. All of those things are an explanation of the upside down. The kingdom of God is the theme of Jesus, is what it is. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, verse 24. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sicknesses or diseases were, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds naturally followed him then wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten, the ten towns. The ten towns is Decapolis. That's Deca, Roman prefix for ten. Decapolis is the ten towns is where it is. There's a really cool story in Matthew chapter 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, I don't know if it's my first or second story. The other one is where the right-handed cripple dude stabs the fat king with his left hand, and then the fat closes over the guy's sword, and he has to leave the sword in it, and then the guy poops himself. Who did not know that that story with those exact details are in the Bible? Y'all need to read more. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's some good stuff. Well, one of my other top three stories in the Bible is about the two naked, demon-possessed guys that try to jump Jesus. Who did not know that two naked guys tried to jump Jesus and the disciples? Raise your hand. Ha-ha! Woo! Listen, if, if, if you think the Bible's boring, you're just reading the wrong parts. That's all I got to say. There's some naked dudes who try to beat the crap out of Jesus, and they're from the ten towns. That's why I brought it up. All right? Back at it. Uh, Jerusalem from all of Judea and from east of the Jordan River. So news about Jesus is spreading everywhere. Matthew tells us of 126 times where Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and he uses those phrases that seems to be interchangeably. Now, the word that's translated into kingdom in English, we think of as a realm, like an actual location. Like we think of the United Kingdom being England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. We think of the kingdom of Arendelle, where, who lived there? Elsa lived there, right? The, the, right? We, we think of kingdom as being a place. But when the Bible uses the word kingdom, it's talking about the area of oversight. It's talking about, thank you. It's talking about, it's, it's talking about like, where I rule, reign, and have dominion. It's, it's more action-oriented. So when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about where God rules and reigns in the human story. And like when Adam and Eve like rebelled against God, they were rebelling against the kingdom of God. They were, when they chose my path is better than God's path, they were saying, I no longer want God to rule and reign over me. And that was them abandoning the kingdom of God. Like, that's what's meant by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It is when I live under the authority of my sovereign. When the Jewish people later, who God calls to be a picture, since all of mankind has rejected the kingdom of heaven, I will go to Abraham and through his children, I will set up a kingdom by which they can model to the rest of the world what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, under the authority, reign, dominion, the authority, the, the rulership of God. Then at the end of Judges, it, it, it says that they had no king, and then it opens up in the, in the next passage of Scripture where they demand a king. And the prophet and high priest Samuel tells them, you already have a king. His name is Yahweh. And they go, we don't want 
Yahweh. We want a king like all the other nations have a king. And they rejected the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus would show up to reestablish what man was born for but had rejected both as all people and as his representative people. All people through Adam have rejected the kingdom and authority of God. All of the Jewish people who were the example had rejected the authority and rule of the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes, now I'm setting up the kingdom of God. And then he tells a parable about that, about a man who goes into a far country and he has a vineyard and he sends prophets or he sends messengers to collect what's due him because this is his vineyards. And then they beat each one of those messengers. And then finally he sends his son. And then they kill his son. Remember that story that Jesus told? Maybe you don't. It's, it's a really good one too. It's also about the kingdom of God. And that one is Jesus telling about himself and what he's doing right now. Establishing, reestablishing, calling everybody into a life lived under the authority of a benevolent sovereign is what he was calling us into. He contrasts it with the kingdom of man because as the Jewish people, and truthfully all world religions, have this in common, that if you're good, or their version of good, then God, or their version of God, lets you go to heaven, or their version of heaven. That's what all religions have in common. And Jesus shows up and he says to the Jews who said, the good things in life can be earned, and they're owed to you by God. The Romans said the good things in life are to be taken if you have the power and the finances to do it. And Jesus shows up and he goes, no, the good things in life that you want most are given by God to those who are in his kingdom. That's what he does. So everything's contrasted. And everything that we've been chasing, he says, you're chasing those things to get something that you can get without, from God without going through all of this because this becomes your functional savior when he's intended to be. Your Savior. Jesus said things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's a really famous one. You don't have to be religious to know that one. And that's Jesus going, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's what Jesus does with that verse. Um, so he talks about the kingdom of God. That's his major theme. And he starts unpacking what that looks like for us in the Sermon on the Mount. So all we're doing in this series is looking at the very beginning, his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which he is unpacking the nine vibes of the kingdom of God. I don't know how you explain what this is. Like this is, like if you want to know like the ethos of the kingdom of God, like the vibe, right, of the kingdom of God, it's these nine things. So he starts off, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, which they did every time he stopped walking, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them about what? The kingdom of God. Verse 3 says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. And he gives six more things that God blesses these kind of people, people who have this vibe, people who live for the upside down. These are the ones that God blesses. So the, the first question I have is, what does it mean that God blesses? Because I know that when I was 16, when I asked God to bless me, I meant that God needed to give me a hot girlfriend. Anybody else ever pray for that? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just me and Jeff? I think the rest of you guys are freaking liars. That's what I think. Some of you guys are right now praying for this. Right? 
Right now you're praying that God, or a hot boyfriend, or God, let my, let, please let my wife be hot. Right? Or some of you guys are like, she ain't got to be hot. I just need somebody that likes me. Right? Uh, wow, that sounded really harsh. I didn't mean it that way. I'm just, but what, what is blessing? Right? That's the question. What does it mean that God blesses? Uh, Jesse Duplantis would say that he's blessed. I saw a meme on Instagram Reels this past week where he said, everything I touch turned to gold. My 40-year-old daughter said, I don't get sick. I tried sick once, and I said, I don't like it. And then this whole crowd is this. He's like, I'm the richest preacher in America, and I have the largest mansion in all of Alabama. And everybody's like, yes, that's blessing. That's blessing. That's blessing. Uh, Creflo Dollar. I need me a private, I need me another private jet. That's blessing. Uh, you, you see the TV preachers. I'm going to call bull crap on all that. Can I do that? Can I do that? All right. Now, I'm, God's not, like, if, if you have the ability to create wealth, I don't think that that's evil. I think it's a tool, though. It makes a horrible God, but it's a fantastic tool to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. Um... Yeah, but what does it mean to be blessed? Because if that's what blessing is, then Jesus wasn't blessed. He said the birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Apostle Paul wasn't blessed because he died getting his head chopped off in a Roman prison, penniless. None of the disciples were blessed. All of them were martyred. Except John the, John, St. John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos and died in isolation and all alone. I, is that, weren't they blessed? So we're all like, oh, this is a trick question again? I don't know where you're going with this one because this is not science. <laughs> I don't want to know if I want to do any of this as it gets me all of that, right? But what does it mean? Now, the word blessed, it does mean to be favored, but we measure favor in money. We want what Rome provides. I want money, I want power, I want authority, and I want influence, right? Like, um, I want, I want rentals, I want, and nothing wrong with having these things, right? Like, if you, if you have rentals, if you have money in the bank, if you have a million subscribers to your YouTube channel, tell me, I want to follow, see what kind of crap you're putting out, that's awesome. Uh, and if you, you know, you run companies and stuff like that, that's, it's incredible that God has gifted you that way. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, a beautiful thing, but what do we do with all of those things? Why do we want that? Why do I want money? Why do I want power? Why do I want authority? Why do I want influence? And it's so I can get the things that I think those things will get me. Things like security, shelter, rest, peace, love, satisfaction, contentment, and joy. So you don't want paper. You want what the paper gets you. And all of that stuff God says, I'm the one who can provide that for you. I just want to cut out the middleman. Like, you think you got to get all that, and you get that, and you can get this. Jim Carrey, didn't I already say that? Get all of it you want, and you're going to feel that that isn't the same thing as this. It's like, well, i like to get that, to try to get that. And Jesus just says, God doesn't like the middleman. Like, he's the source of your security. He's the shelter. He's the peace. He's the joy. He's the love. He's the contentment. He's just trying to cut out the middleman. He wants you to see that the source of your greatest satisfaction is him, not what you want from him. So he favors the poor. Why? He says that God favors those who are poor and 
know they need him. It's not that God favors all poor people. That's not the point. The point isn't poverty. The point is, God blesses the poor, those who are poor, and know they need him. Where's the emphasis on that, do you think? Those who know they need him. Now, the poor have an advantage because they've got nothing else to depend on. But it's not, they're not blessed because of their poverty. They're blessed because in their poverty, they often know how badly they need God. And for some of us, you really don't need God. Like, there's nobody here that I'm aware of that actually has to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because you've got food for the next six days. And on day four, you're going to go out and buy food for another 14 days. Nobody here needs our daily bread. We are the wealthiest nation in the world per capita. And even those who qualify for poverty, the threshold of poverty, are wealthier than 86% of the rest of the world. The reason why you and I, and by the way, there are millionaires in this room who still don't think they're rich. Because everybody has somebody higher up on the ladder to measure against. Everybody here does. You know what I mean? So we're chasing the ladder, but the ladder doesn't have a top to it. I mean, it does, but it's Elon. <laughs> and yeah, he owns a freaking, well, him and the rest of the Illuminati, they own the world. Oh, but blessed are those, and it's the, it, it, the idea that it's not just the poverty thing is the reason why the King James translators wrote, God blesses the poor in spirit, because that's the vibe it's going for. It's those who know that they're desperate for God. It's why Jesus said that it's impossible for the rich to in, enter the kingdom of heaven, that the rich can't be saved. And then Peter says, well then, wait, what? And he goes, well, with man, that's impossible. Why? Because man on his own is always going to gravitate towards his wealth as his idol. And then he goes, but what's impossible with man is impossible with man is possible with me. I can actually get somebody's heart to be broken. And if somebody whose heart is broken will turn to me, then that person does receive the kingdom of heaven regardless of how much money they have. Why? Because they realize that it wasn't about how much money they had. It was about whether or not they had God. Because that's been the point all along. It's just that the more money you have, the more you worship it. That's all. But I know wealthy people in this church who are some of the most godly people in our church because they know they need God more than the money. And if they had to choose God or money, they know which one they would pick. I think those of us who are parents who have small kids struggle in this area more, I think, during that season when our kids are small. Because we want our kids to have everything we didn't have. We want our kids to have lots of friends. Ryan's first birthday party had one kid show up to it. That was really sad. He was 17. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was four. I think that has more to do with my wife and I not connecting with all of the other parents because those four-year-olds weren't going to be able to drive themselves. You know what I mean? It was his preschool at the Jones School in Stoughton. 
and uh, had one kid show up. I, my wife was like, I think maybe I ought to get involved with some of the parent groups. I was like, yeah, for the safety of our child, please, let's do this, right? Um, we want our kids to be smart. We want them to get scholarships. We want them to get an NIL. We want them to be an AAU. We, oh, somebody got an NIL. All right. Um, we, like, we, want, we want them to get scholarships. We want them to become fabulously wealthy. So we'll talk to our kids about our, their grades all the time, and we talk to them about the commitments they made to their teams, and we'll change our vacations. I, I remember the first time my son made travel baseball, Garrett, as a 12-year-old. I remember like halfway through the summer, I said to Billy Jane, I said, he is too young to be in charge of this family. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was crazy, right? Um, but when it comes to their religion, we delegate that to the church. And our kids are gaining the whole world and walking away from faith and losing their soul. You've lost everything as a parent. I can't imagine anything worse than my kids making all the money in the world and then I was standing before God on judgment day and hearing Jesus say to my son, depart from me, you work of iniquity, you were never my kid. I won't give a rat's butt about AAU on that day. Or his grades or his grades. Blessed are those who are poor and know how much they need God more than NAL, NIL, more than scholarships, more than grades, more than money. They know they need God because those people own the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who get the kingdom of God. Anybody, wealthy or poor, the point is they know how desperate they are for God the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's what he says. The second thing he says is that God favors those who mourn. This is the same word that's described, that's used to describe the way jo J Jacob felt when his older ten sons came and told him that his 11th born son Joseph had been attacked by a lion and killed. Man, this is... I haven't lost a child. Uh, you know the word mourn better than anybody in this room knows the word, word mourn. Just grieve. That's a good word. Grief is so freaking heavy where there's no happiness. And all of the light is just sucked out. God says that those who get to that point, and here's what happens when we get to that point. We either wallow in self-pity or we anesthetize ourselves by self-medicating. We deal with trauma from our past by becoming sexually promiscuous, becoming heavy drinkers. Some of us will get addicted to controlled substances or porn or risky behavior or shopping on Amazon. We just don't want to feel. That's, that's what's happening. So Jesus says, that's not what you're supposed to do with this grief. This grief is an indicator to you that the world is upside down and needs to be set right. So those who come to me with that, 
I promise to heal. I'll, I'll comfort. Those are the people I comfort. There's a lot of things in the world to grieve. Oh my gosh, there's a lot to grieve. There's death, suffering, injustice, loss, abuse, failure, and our own personal contribution to the depravity in the world and the sin in our own hearts. David, after he committed adultery with the wife of one of his best friends and then murdered his best friends to cover up that he had gotten her pregnant and then married her really quick so that her pregnancy would look like it was legitimate. That's a scumbag. Uh, gets confronted by his sin and in response, he writes Psalm chapter 51. And here's what he says in verse 16. He says, you do not desire a sacrifice for I would offer one. Some of us, that's what we do. When we do something wrong, we go, God, I'm, I'm going to start going to church. God, I'm going I'm 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 to give to a charity. God, I'm going to, and we start bargaining with God. And David goes, if there was a bargain I could strike, I would strike it. Just tell me what you want me to do to make amends. There's no amends for sin, for the brokenness in the world and the harm that we've caused to the people that we've come in contact with our entire lives and we can't unsay the things that we said to our mom when we were teenagers or our ex back when we were married to them. The horrible fights that we exposed our children to. Like we can't, there's no amends for that, dude. David goes, if there was a way to make amends, I would do it. I would, I would offer it, but you don't want that, he says. Verse 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You want grief. You want genuine, broken, heavy remorse for what I have done. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. And that is what I offer you. That's all I can offer you is the sincere regret that I have lived without your authority in my life and have turned my back on your kingdom. That I have flipped you off in my heart and said, leave me alone. I'm done. I'm sorry. And Jesus goes, God takes that away. That song, shame will be removed. Yeah, man. He comforts those who mourn, who are heavily brokenhearted, those who have been hurt. My mom, I've mentioned this a lot, and my mom and dad wrote a book together about it. Um, yeah, and if anybody's interested, let me know. It's on Amazon, but that's not a plug. Um, I guess it's a plug, but it's, I only say that as a resource. You, you, I've never done that before. I'm just saying if you need that resource, you look at my dad's name on, on Amazon. His name's Ron Sears, and if that helps you, that way you don't have to tell me you're struggling with this, but my mom was abused. I'm not going to go into details because there's kids in here by her dad for a long time and uh, just buried it and uh, because kids are resilient, they're able to do that. And, and it was in when she was, I was 26, so she was 47, and she found out that she wasn't the only one that my granddad had hurt. And then she felt she was responsible because she never said anything. So that all of that was her fault.
And my mom became a ghost of a person for about three years. She didn't get dressed for days and weeks at a time. It was, it was a freaking emergency, man. And she wasn't coming out of it. Because none of her old ways of coping with this was working. So it's almost like she was getting worse for a while. Now, all of her kids are adults, and we're all followers of Jesus. So we're just like, every night, dear God, help my mom. So we squashed that woman in prayer, man. Oh my gosh, everybody was praying for her for like two, three years. And through prayer, honestly, and godly counsel, she was able over those two or three years to take all of this grief and instead of running from it, all of this crap that had been on top of her her entire life, she just gave that to God. I don't even know how she did that. It was just like, God, I can't anymore, but I'll trust you. And what happened at the end of that third year is like her whole life just went, whew. And now my mom talks about it openly. I mean, not in any vulgar way, but is not ashamed of the thing that used to keep her in the dark. She wrote a book about it and to help other women and men get through this. And now speaks at conferences. Like, bro, that's the freaking upside down. That's those who mourn will be comforted because they know where to go with their pain. And the third thing he says is that God blesses those who are humble. And the truth is no one likes to feel overlooked. I hate it. I'm an outgoing person and I need to be liked. Okay? Can I put that out there? If you have any insecurities at all, raise your hand. Everybody whose hand is not up, you're insecure. That's why you didn't raise your hand. <laughs> gotcha. Everybody in here has them. All of us want others to recognize our value and what we bring to the table. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think sometimes we pursue those things in ways that do not honor God. As I mentioned before, the point isn't whether you're poor or rich. The poor is your need for God. But in this last one, God blesses those who are humble. They know that what they have right now and where they're at is assigned to them by God, and they are required to be faithful with it. That's what it is. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 and 12, he says, the greatest among you must be the servant. The greatest among you must serve the most. So if you are a position of, if you, if you have a position of authority in your business, you're a business owner. We have a lot of business owners in our church. We have people in our church that because of jobs they have in the city control hundreds of millions of dollars. The power that you wield is to serve others. It's not for you. That's the humble. Those are the one that God favors those who recognize that their, their personal wealth, the wealth they manage, their personal authority, the influence they have in the lives of so many other people, that all of this is a gift from God that they will give an account to for what they did for God's kingdom purposes in the world with. 
nothing wrong with having a nice house, but if you have money so that you can have a nice house, that's the problem because the nice house is what you were chasing, not the glory of God. That's why it became the problem. It's those who are in leadership who recognize that leadership is less about authority and more about taking responsibility. It's those who recognize I'm here to serve. Then he goes on to say, verse 12, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's it. It's those who don't have to have. Right? Like the first one is about those who don't have. The second one is about those who had but lost. And this one's about those who don't have to have even what they do have. They don't have to have it. Because it's always about God anyway. So, I mean, the Apostle Paul got to this place. That's why he said, I've been, I've been wealthy and I've been poor. Yeah, he was wealthy. He came from a wealthy aristocratic family who lived in Tarsus and their family were merchants. Yeah, homeboy had a crap ton of money. Oh, and he was mentored by Gamaliel that even Caesar respected. This dude has a resume like nobody. He said, you know what, if I thought my Jewish heritage was in, he goes, you know what, I don't want to brag. All of the stuff that makes me great, I don't. And then, he, and then he goes, but let me tell you all the awesome stuff about me. Brags anyway. But he says, all that stuff I count as garbage. He said that in comparison to knowing the excellency of, of Jesus. Um, but they don't have to have. They recognize that what they do have or don't have is exactly what God wants them to have or not have. So Paul said, I've been wealthy, I've been poor, I've been in prison, and I've been a free man. I've been shipwrecked, and I've traveled the world. And I found the secret is to be content in all things. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've heard that one. That's Philippians 4.13. Tim Tebow says it's to help him score touchdowns. Paul said it's so that you can be happy even if you're sitting in crap. That's different, Tim. Right? It's God doesn't owe me anything. And where I am and what I have is where God wants me and it's what he wants me to have. So I need to figure out how to freaking crush this before I ask for anything else. Some of us are asking God for more and you ain't managing what you got well. Why would he give you more to mismanage? How does that make any sense? He is not that irresponsible. Tell you what, you crush this and watch what he does next. That's it. That's the humble. They're not fresh. They're like, God, give me, give me, give me. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Nope. God, I submit to your authority in my life and help me to crush where I am and what I've got for your glory's sake in Jesus' name. That's your prayer. God says when you humble yourself under the sovereignty of God, God goes, those are the people who find all the stuff that you wanted your money for anyway. Those are the people who find security, shelter, peace, joy, contentment, love, and satisfaction. And you've met people like that. They have less than you, but they're happier than you. Doesn't that drive you nuts? My favorite movie in all the world, Count of Monte Cristo. The bad guy hated the good guy. He was rich and he was poor. He got a pony, wasn't happy with it. He got a whistle and loved it, and he hated him for it. So he stole his whistle when they were kids. Right? Man, 
God loves people who love whistles. Tweet that. <laughs> In a world obsessed with wealth, ego, stats, fame, Jesus said that God favors those who don't need those things from God in order to obey, worship, and follow him. Nothing wrong with being famous. Some of you guys are invited to speak at conferences in your industry all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have to have that to feel okay, if you have to have that in order to be grateful to God, bro, that's not good. But you can fix that. I can't fix that for you. You can fix that for you. And I'll give you a chance to do that now so you can go by your head. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I'm thankful for how many times you've allowed me to hit the reset button. I have worn off the letters on that button. And what's awesome is that still that button still works as good now as it did when you first gave it to me. So forgive me, God, for all of the ways in which I try to live independent of you, where I work not to take risks, even the risks that you put in my heart, because I'm afraid that I'm going to have less or that it will negatively impact my quality of life or the way other people see me or my influence at work or school or on my team. God, there's nothing wrong with being on an AAU team. There's nothing wrong with getting an NIL. Nothing wrong with scholarships. Nothing wrong with owning a house. But God, if we have to have these things in order to praise you, then we worship them, not you. Forgive us for that. The whole point is that we just know where our blessings come from and we recognize that we're accountable to leverage those things to expand your kingdom, your rule and reign in the lives and hearts of everybody around us. Because the solution to the brokenness in the world is not in Washington. It's not on Wall Street. It's in Jesus. We need to be changed from the inside out, and only you can do that. And if you need that, tell them, God, I need you to fix me, man. I am not good. I am not good. If you're far from God, tell them that. I don't want to be far anymore, God. If you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from your sin, and you're ready to repent of that sin and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near, then tell them that. Jesus, thank you for taking away my sin. Forgive me and save me from it. Help me to follow you. Give me that reset button. I need to hit that. If you've been anesthetizing yourself from feelings of pain, hurt, neglect, isolation, or abuse, I'm just sorry. I'm so sorry if that's a part of your story but I know exactly where you need to go with that. Tell them right now, God, I'm giving you my past. I can't change it anyway. Heal me from it. Heal me, God. Heal me. Put the broken pieces back together again and make me whole. Forgive me for my sin and the brokenness that's in me also in a way that I've hurt other people too, probably. And let me recognize how blessed I already am and how responsible I am for those blessings to serve you and others. In Jesus' name, we ask this, and we all say together, amen.